good afternoon and welcome to this Euractive virtual conference. My name is Sean Golding Carroll. I'm a journalist covering transport and environment issues, and I'll be the moderator for today's discussion. So today's event is supported by CLIA Europe, the Cruise Lines International Association, and the event is titled Fit for 55 on All Fronts, Can Europe Lead Innovation in Green Maritime? So today's event comes roughly two months after the unveiling of the European Commission's Fit for 55 package of energy and climate laws, which aims to cut emissions by 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels. Specific attention has been paid to the maritime sector, with the European Commission putting forward a number of legislative proposals aimed at reducing maritime's carbon footprint. Perhaps chief among those proposals is Fuel EU Maritime, which seeks to increase the uptake of low and zero carbon fuels. The European Commission has also proposed expanding the EU's emission trading system, which is the EU's carbon market, to the maritime sector. So today, with this backdrop, we'll be discussing how best to green maritime activities in Europe. So first up, I'd like to introduce today's panelists. I'm delighted to be joined by Joachim Nunes de Almeida, Director for Energy Intensive Industries and Mobility with the European Commission CG Grow, Christoph Tickat, Secretary General of Sea Europe, a body representing maritime, civil, and naval technology industries, Michele Acciaro, Director of the Hapag uh, Lloyd Center for Shipping and Global Logistics, and Associate Professor of Maritime Logistics at Kuna Logistics University, Uko Metzler, the Director General of Clear Europe, and I'd also like to warmly welcome Roxana Lesovich of the European Commission, who's a communications advisor and a member of the cabinet of Adina Valian, the EU Transport Commissioner. Uh, Ms. Lesovich will provide the opening remarks for today's debate and will also join our panel discussion later on. Roxana, thank you very much for joining us today. The floor is yours. Thank you, Sean, and uh, good afternoon, and thank you for the invitation to join you today. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to engaging in a constructive discussion. I have to admit, after one and a half year of pandemic, I'm still not used to talking to a screen, so please bear with me. I would have very much liked to see all of you in person, but I guess we have to do with the current uh, restrictions and safety comes first, as we always say in maritime. Um, if I can start, the short answer to the two questions raised in your title of your event is simply yes. But I guess you have tuned in to know more about how this vital sector of our economy will make this transformative journey and how the regulatory framework in Europe will help it uh, along the way. So as Sean has said, I have been asked to open the discussions with a short introduction of our thinking behind the maritime proposals in the Fit for 55 package, and which I guess will keep many of us busy for months and years to, to come, as uh, my colleagues in the Commission just know very well how much time that takes. For Europe to meet its carbon neutrality target for 2050, transport emissions across modes will need to be cut by 90% by the same date, and all modes will need to contribute to this effort. None of them will be exempt. They will all serve our economy and are important to our daily lives, but they all need to become greener. There is no silver bullet or a single measure capable to achieve this reduction in the maritime sector. We all need action on all fronts. A basket of measures is therefore required to achieve this goal, and I'm sure you have heard this terminology before, because it is very dear to our heart. We need to do a lot of stuff in a lot of areas. 
To reduce emissions, we need to address how much fuel vessels consume on their voyages and how carbon intensive or not, hopefully, those fuels are. So let me start with the amount of fuels used by ships. The emissions trading system and its extension to the maritime sector has a key role to play in this area. By putting a price on the carbon emitted, ETS will promote energy efficiency and savings, thus further driving down emissions. Some have said that ETS will not achieve much reduction in the sector itself. But the attractiveness of a market-based measure like the ETS is that it reduces emissions by setting a cap while keeping the associated costs lowest bringing overall efficiency to the entire economy. Ship operators will implement energy efficiency measures when these will cost less than the price of carbon emitted. In turn, they will pay into the system when the price is lower than the investment needed, while the necessary reduction will still happen through somewhere else, as other players in the market will find it more economical to reduce emissions. And the ETS is not the only measure available to ships to increase their efficiency. The IMO, as you very well know, has already set global standards for ships' energy efficient design, and the recent decision on operational efficiency will also have a key role to play here. As we turn our attention to the type of fuel used, we must remember that climate neutrality in 2050 means that renewables and low carbon fuels will need to cover around 86% of the fuel mix. Today, that fuel mix is composed 99% by um, fossil fuels, and many operators are trapped in a wait-and-see attitude. Of course, there are many reasons to this. First, we all know there is not one single technology today that can be easily used across all ship types and all trades. Second, with ships being built and used for decades, the industry needs regulatory predictability and stability if they are to make the necessary investments. And third, we need the underlying fuel ecosystem from the availability of the fuel to the necessary infrastructure to bunker so that ship can sail with a guarantee that they can refuel when and where required. So, uh, Sean has mentioned the famous Fit for 55 package, which is where we have tried to address all these issues in one place. The proposal of renewable energy sources covers the supply and production side of alternative fuels. The proposal on alternative fuels infrastructure will look at the distribution and the necessary infrastructure developments into the system, while fuel EU maritime will ensure there is actually a demand for such fuels. Finally, we cannot forget about it, the energy taxation proposal foresees that alternative fuels will have a minimum taxation rate of zero for the first 10 years, precisely to incentivize their take-up. Together, all these proposals seek to break the chicken and egg situation we have been for years when it comes to alternative fuels in maritime. I want to spend a moment on the fuel EU maritime proposal. It may sound technical and complicated, and trust me, a year and a half ago when I joined the cabinet, it did sound like that, but there actually is a simple logic to it. To incentivize demand, we are proposing a fuel standard by means of a maximum carbon intensity level for the energy used on board ships over a certain year. As the market for such fuels is in its infancy right now, we will gradually strengthen the mandate in the proposal so that there is sufficient lead time for the necessary investment. The measure is flag neutral and applies to all ships above a certain tonnage on an intra-EU voyage and for 50% of international traffic. As I said, the proposal aims to create a market for alternative fuels in the EU 
So the obligation is on the ship owners, on the operators, meaning those who have the decision power on fuel, route, or speed of the ship and speed of the ship. It also has been crucially important to my commissioner that we keep technology, uh, technology neutral approach as, as not a single fuel is widely available for use today on the large variety of ships and trades that we have in the sector. We have also proposed to set requirements for zero emissions at birth, starting with container and passenger ships, including cruise liners. These are the largest emitters. Container ships emit 44% of total CO2 emissions, as we have found out through the MRV regulation, while passenger ships close to 25 and 25%. And together, they represent about 40% of total emissions at birth. So it's just natural that we start with them. For example, such ships can connect to onshore power supply or use zero emission technologies to cover all their needs while at birth. Of course, we are all aware that at least for the immediate future, not all ports are equipped with OPS possibilities and that batteries or fuel cell, again, are not widely available and tested on, on, a, on a large number of ships. So these requirements will kick in in 2030 and some exemptions will be allowed for a limited per period of time until 2035. Mandating the use of such alternative fuels from vessels that call frequently, sorry, um, mandating this requ specific requirements at birth from, from vessels that call frequently at our ports would not only reduce their CO2 emission, but dramatically reduce air pollution and noise for the local communities as well. And we cannot forget about them. And with a population ever more concerned by climate change, let us not forget the possibility to sell to new customers the advantages, say, of a responsible and sustainable cruise operation around Europe. Some will say that fuel requirements should have been placed on the supply side. First, you know, just as well as I do, that ships can bunker where they want and they can travel then long distances on a single tank. For this reason, any measure that would have focused solely on, uh, on fuel supply is likely to have been circumvented by ships bunkering outside Europe. This would have distorted the level playing field with those operating predominantly or exclusively in the EU. Second, let us not forget that our earlier attempts to focus on the supply side had rather limited success. Despite strong pushes for LNG in the past, only 0.52% of the fleet currently runs on this type of fuel. On the other hand, we have set global standards for sulfur in marine fuels, and now the entire world uses cleaner blends than 10 years ago. I know you have Christoph on the panel, and I really look forward to hearing his views on how the proposed regulatory framework will help boost the low carbon fuels and technology producers in Europe. Because let us not forget that we have a high-tech sector able to design, construct and deliver the most sophisticated vessels and marine equipment. While for most segments of shipbuilding, this takes place in Asia, up to 50% of the value of a new ship comes from onboard equipment and technology. And here, European producer and specialized shipyards maintain a leading uh, worldwide position. As the world's largest fleet owner, European ship owners have strong leverage and, a strong, and an important responsibility in this area. They must use it and they must collaborate across the mar maritime value chain to ensure that this twin and digital transition will also help our European equipment producer and shipyards. In this regard, the Waterborne Partnership is a great initiative bringing all of them together. 
Before I close, and I promise I won't be long, I want to spend a moment on the global dimension. Climate change is a global problem and shipping is a global sector. So I cannot envisage the next years without significant progress at international level. The EU has been pursuing global action on shipping emissions since 1997 and will continue to do so. But our climate neutrality target has now been set in law and we need to give legal predictability to industry operators and investors. We cannot afford to wait. After the, light, the latest IPCC report and in the run-up to Glasgow, I don't think the IMO can either. It is reassuring to see steps being taken, like looking at short-term measures for operational efficiency and launching or relaunching, depending how long you've been in this business, discussions on market-based measures and the fuel standard. The latter is actively pushed by the member states and the commission at the IMO through concrete proposal. Proposals. As regards MBMs, you may recall that we have committed in the strategy for a sustainable, smart and resilient transport system that we will also make a proposal to the IMO next year. I want to reassure everyone that the EU and its member states will continue actively engaging in the IMO to progress on all these issues. But we also expect serious efforts from our partners there to agree and implement ambitious measures to deliver the necessary reductions worldwide. The upcoming meetings at the IMO this autumn will demonstrate the determination of the world at how fast we can bring about change in the sector. And we will do our utmost to ensure alignment between global and regional requirements, given that the EU and IMO advance at different uh, paces. So to come back to your original question and my early answer, yes, the maritime sector has the capacity and dare I say the responsibility to lead the green transition in the years to come. We have proposed a legal framework to help them in their efforts. Some will say it still needs improvement, and it may be so, but I want to make one thing clear. There is no turning back. Our efforts are resolutely on the future, and the task ahead, is ahead of us is serious. So let's just get down to work. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Roxana, for uh, these insightful opening remarks. They provide an excellent background for today's discussion. Um, let me now turn to our other panelists. So to kick off, I'll invite each panelist to provide a, a short opening statement. Uh, and this will be followed then by a Q&A session. Uh, this Q&A session will include questions from our viewers. So you at home or perhaps in the office now, uh, you're warmly encouraged to submit questions uh, through the chat. Um, so, firstly, I would like to give the floor to Joachim Nunes de Almeida of the European Commission's DG Grow. Uh, Joachim, your opening statement, please. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I'm in this position since March this year, Director in DG Grow for Mobility and Energy Intensive Industries. So we we deal, uh, I've got a team focusing on mobility, including automotive, uh, maritime and rail. Turning on our discussion, turning into our discussion today, um, delivering on the European Green Deal ambition of a low emission, climate neutral economy requires that every sector contributes to the clean transition and the shipping sector is no exception. It's true that the transition may create significant challenges as economic actors will have to change their way of doing business develop new innovative productions and solutions. This being said, we have also conceived the Green Deal as our new growth strategy, 
allowing to realize the economic opportunities of the green transition. And in that regard, let me outline a number of tools which we have at our disposal to facilitate this. First and foremost, as you probably don't need to be remembered, there was the publication of the Fit for 55 package on July 14 this year, which is explicitly mentioned in the title of today's event. This package has been designed to implement the ambition of the European Green Deal and a number of proposals are directly affecting shipping. They are there to provide legal certainty and ensure that the regulatory framework enables and facilitates the transition through the definition of the appropriate targets and the establishment of the instruments to meet them. Markets abhor a, vacu a vacuum, uh, markets need clarity, and we think we have prov provided a regulatory clarity. Now, as today's discussion concerns greening maritime transport through innovation, it is essential to also highlight the potential of an instrument like the zero emission waterborne transport public-private partnership under Horizon Europe. With an EU contribution of up to 530 million euro for the next seven years, the partnership will boost private research and innovation for the delivery of clean solutions for the fleet already by 2030. A successful green transition, transition will also need to rely on the development of a strong and agile industrial ecosystem to support it. And as we know, Europe has strong assets on maritime as a follow-up to the updated industrial strategy, which we have adopted in spring, we are currently working towards the identification of transition pathways. These will be co-created together with you, basically with industry, with public authorities, with social partners, and the stakeholders community at large. They will offer a better bottom-up understanding of the scale, cost, and conditions of the required action to accompany the twin transitions for the most relevant ecosystems leading to an actionable plan in favor of sustainable competitiveness. And the transition pathway for the mobility ecosystem is being developed right now, and we're looking forward to your input. Now, why and how can Europe su succeed? Europe is still a leader in maritime due, a, due to a thriving maritime cluster from ship owners to ports, operators to technology providers, builders to academia. These resources are available and we need to find the way to maximize the cooperation with the entire value chain to ensure that Europe keeps its leadership in the development of innovative and clean marine solutions. Now, coming to an end, in order to do this, enhancing dialogue and cooperating among us and among the different actors of the ecosystems, will be critical. The experience which we have gained in the, last, in the past decade to make the shift from heavy fuel oil to low sulfur fuels, to develop LNG as a real energy solution for maritime transport, has taught us at least two important lessons. First, ladies and gentlemen, these are long-term efforts. And secondly, success will require the cooperation of all actors. So. The message is clear. It's, it is all hands on deck. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, Joachim. Uh, next up is Christoph Titgat of Sea Europe. Uh, Christoph, the floor is yours. Thank you and good afternoon to all of you. And first of all, many thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, my name has already been uh, mentioned by uh, Rosanna. Um, I am uh, Christoph Titgat. I represent the interests of Sea Europe, and that is the European Umbrella Association that represents the shipyards and maritime equipment manufacturers in Europe. And our members are active in on the commercial side as well as on the naval side. And indeed, we look at the European Green Deal and the Fit for 55 with a lot of um, interest and attention. We are at the moment uh, looking into the various um, proposals of the package and um, we have not yet a, a fully established uh, position because it is in the end a huge package but we look at it from uh, two sides first of all there is the climate change angle and i think we all agree that there is a necessity to move forward and that will um, imply the involvement of all actors including shipyards and equipment manufacturers but we also look at the other dimension and that has also been raised um, by the second speaker and that is the dimension of economic growth and there we are um, at the moment a bit in a, I would say, awkward situation because indeed Europe has still a global leadership in complex shipbuilding and in complex uh, maritime equipment manufacturing. We have that leadership despite the fact that on the shipyard side we lost one market after the other to Asia in the past um, four decades. And in that respect we at the moment also look very much forward to the discussions that are going to take place on the foreign subsidy um, proposed regulation. But we can also not ignore the fact that the COVID crisis has had a, a very negative impact on our sector. And the reason is that the cruise uh, industry and by extension the cruise building industry and its supply chain has been heavily impacted. At the moment or before COVID, 80% of our order book was predominantly cruise um, building. So for us at the moment, we are facing a situation whereby we look at the European Green Deal and the Fit for 55 with a lot of interest. And we see this as a, um, a context that can offer us interesting opportunities, not just to maintain what we have, but also to regain certain markets. But at the same time, we have to overcome this crisis. And this is in the first place, I think, a very uh, big challenge for the shipyards. If I may uh, say one important thing, and, and Roxana already um, referred to it, we are indeed on the equipment side um, a leader, a still a leader. And I think the Green Deal will be very important for the equipment manufacturers. But let's not forget the shipyard dimension. One needs the other. The shipyards need the equipment manufacturers as the equipment manufacturers need the shipyards. And on the European side, and there I fully subscribe to what has just been said by the previous speaker, the ecosystem approach will be um, critical. And we have to look into the entire ecosystem. And that means shipyards as well as maritime equipment manufacturers and ship owners. All will be important, others uh, maritime stakeholders too. But let's not forget that all these um, uh, actors are important. And the economic growth uh, element is especially perhaps for the shipyards uh, a very important element because if we have the right conditions the right framework uh, conditions if we do a proper enforcement and we also 
on the side of the foreign subsidy uh, discussions, we managed to kind of solve part of the problem of competitiveness of which our shipyards have been suffering, unfortunately, too much in the past decades. I think we will still have a very bright future. So we look at the entire um, uh, context and clearly the European Green Deal offers us an opportunity, but we still need to go a long way and we are eager also to see how the discussions will evolve in the European Parliament and the uh, Council. But clearly, if we want, if there is a clear political willingness from our side in the industry, there is clearly a willingness to make this Green Deal work and to lead um, uh, in terms of innovation. Thank you. Thank you, Christoph. I'm sure we'll touch on many of your points during our discussion. Um, now I'll hand over to Michele Acharo. Uh, Michele, your opening remarks, please. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. And I would like to, of course, to thank Euroactive for inviting me to speak today. I think it is a really interesting panel and, of course, is a very complex and odd topic that we are about to discuss. Um, there is a lot of interesting points that have already been highlighted. What I would like to, to mention is that uh, uh, the intervention from the European Commission could not become at the most appropriate time. Uh, I think it is emerging very clearly that Europeans want uh, action on climate change. It is very clear that they're also willing to take action themselves. I think there was a, a recent uh, a Eurobarometer study focusing on climate change that really has shown that from the side of Europeans, uh, this is what we really want to have. And that uh, means that regulation is the first step. It is a welcome step but it is not uh, a sufficient step. It's a necessary but not sufficient step for uh, uh, ensuring that we have an environmental sustainability transition for, for the sector in, in shipping. And I'm sure that we will be discussing many of the, of the issues that are relevant for this transition. I want to highlight two important aspects. The first one is a necessity to uh, address the uh, what I call background conditions that relates to uh, the availability of the fuel that relates to the infrastructure at ports that relates also to ensuring that there is a business model that allows for companies, uh, European companies, to maintain their, their competitiveness. And I'll come to on this point in, in a minute to, to, to dive a little bit more. And the other aspect is also to make sure that we are mobilizing and including uh, the citizens, and I mean citizen in the broader sense, and uh, not only uh, as citizens because of the actions that they might be taking through, through protest or through uh, uh, social uh, um, action that, that can be taken into the area of greening shipping, but also uh, citizens both as direct users of the shipping sectors. We have, of course, a very important passenger shipping sector in Europe and the cruise industry that was already mentioned that is also very relevant. And also on top of that, of course, uh, uh, citizens that indirectly as consumers have uh, a very big role to play in changing the way companies also set up their sourcing and their procurement strategies. And that includes, of course, uh, demanding greener shipping or low carbon shipping in the future. This aspect is for me relevant because we cannot ensure a sustainability transition without considering that there has to be a business case also available for, uh, for shipping companies. And in that sense, uh, creating this business case and creating the conditions for this business case is also that very, very relevant. And that leads to one of the points that was also already mentioned, and that is ensuring to maintaining the competitiveness of European uh, shipping industry or in general the European maritime industry on the global context. And in that sense, I think we need to combine our action 
in uh, within the EU with the regulation of the EU and I think the Fit for 55 package is a very very good uh, step into this direction but we need to combine that also with a very clear action at the IMO level that we are also doing and also uh, of course with all the partners and the countries that we are collaborating with I mean Europe carries a very heavy weight also economically globally and I think we need to use this weight to ensure that we fast track our ecological transition. And in that way, we also preserve the competitiveness of European companies. We also give them a chance actually to take advantage of their, uh, of their competitive advantage of the investments, the projects, the uh, research capabilities that we have built uh, within the EU. So these are all very, very critical issues that we need to, to consider. And in that sense, um, I think uh, looking at uh, the development, the startups uh, environments that we have in Europe, in trying to foster this, this uh, um, entrepreneurial spirit is also very important for, for tackling the challenges that we have uh, when it comes to, um, to the ecological transition for shipping. Uh, so these are the points that I would like to, to open with, and I'm sure there will be many more that we will be having uh, and discuss later on. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much, Michaela. Uh, now I'll pass to Uko Metzola to share the clear Europe perspective. Uko, the floor is yours. Thank you, Sean. I will make three points and one suggestion. First, cruise industry is fully aligned 100% with the long-term political objectives of the EU Green Deal. We want to be part of this necessary green transition and we can help to accelerate it. Second, as Christoph already mentioned, the entire European industrial maritime cluster is rather heavily dependent on cruise ship building. Just think about what he said. If 80% of the order book of the major European shipyards consists of cruise ships, it's pretty obvious that our industry needs to be at the heart of this um, innovative maritime green growth in Europe. And third, the pandemic has not reduced our determination to become fully sustainable. But at the same time, we do need to recognize that the entire travel and tourism sector has gone through an unfathomable, unprecedented crisis over the last 18 months and counting, with hundreds of thousands of jobs lost and tens if not hundreds of billions uh, lost in revenue and, and, and in the overall travel and tourism economy. Now, um, how to connect these three points into very quick conclusions. Um, as was already mentioned too, an important part of the EU Green Deal, as I understand it, is to allow globally competitive European industries to generate green growth. And green growth can only come through innovation and massive investment. And massive investment also needs political support and regulatory certainty. So I will conclude with one suggestion on how we can really help Europe to lead in green maritime innovation. This is very concrete. The revenue that will be collected through the carbon pricing as part of the Fit for 55 package should be reinvested into the maritime sector. And given the importance of cruising in this economic ecosystem, uh, our industry should qualify for green investment under the future platform for sustainable finance and taxonomy. 
at the end of the day, our collective ability to lead in green maritime innovation is a matter of political choice. Thank you. Back to you, Sean. Thank you very much indeed, Uko. Uh, we can now move to the questions and answers portion uh, of our event today, the wider discussion. Um, Joachim, I know that you have limited time, so um, I want to start with you. Um, so it's been widely reported that fuel EU maritime includes liquefied natural gas uh, as a low carbon fuel. And this has been met with uh, criticism, particularly from environmental groups who say that it will harm the uptake of true zero emission fuels. What's your reaction to this criticism? Well, the, the criticism is natural in the sense that it's good that the, the NGOs and the environmental organizations push us to be as ambitious as possible. Um, but we have to be aware also of the constraints in which industry is operating right now. And right now, the truth of the matter is that you still have very little renewables and hydrogen or decarbonized forms of energy available in Europe. Uh, there are massive problems around scaling all this up. Uh, the investments are often at uh, a high cost without perspective of finding outlets, um, still in competition with fuel, uh, with fossil fuels. Uh, so we're in a difficult journey here. So we also have to have some understanding for industry that on the one hand is faced with an increased carbon price, uh, and on the other hand, with the lack of real alternatives for the moment. So I think that we really have to make an effort to, you know, massively scale up and deploy uh, decarbonized forms of energy in Europe. Thank you very much. Um, well, I want to now just uh, address something that came up a number of times in the opening statements. Um, it's almost impossible to discuss transport without mentioning it. So the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has, of course, caused a downturn in many industries. Um, Uko, I want to start with you. Um, is it now a more difficult prospect to decarbonize because of the COVID-19 pandemic? I wouldn't say so. I mean, we have operated in a full crisis mode for the last 18 months, first with the repatriation crisis and now with our gradual healthy return to service. I mean, of course, the economic devastation here is significant. I mean, cruise ship passenger volume this year is probably down approximately 90% compared to pre-COVID levels, etc. But this whole journey with the 2050 in the horizon, it is such a long period of time that if we are simply allowed to recover, as I'm sure we will, we have strong pent-up demand for our services as of next year, we believe in um, economic recovery. And assuming that we can really find this win-win constructive narrative, as it sounds to me we are able to find with DG Grow and, and DG Move at least, uh, we all want to work towards the same um, direction. But at the same time, I repeat my point, it would be important that when we are effectively taxed for the carbon emissions because of these regulatory changes, it will be important in this economic reality for those funds to be reallocated to the maritime sector so that we can help ourselves in this path towards green innovations. 
So we will play our part, but I think that the governments and the political leadership will also need to make a clear choice that they want this to happen. Thank you very much. Um, Christoph, I'd ask you the same question. Has the pandemic harmed efforts to decarbonize? Well, um, as, uh, there are two aspects in your question. Has the uh, pandemic um, impacted our sector? Clearly, yes. Um, I mean, if you have about 80% of your order book uh, consisting of, of cruise building and the cruise industry is, is impacted, inevitably that also has an impact on, on the shipyards and, and their supply chain. Um, and at the moment, uh, we see uh, various yards now struggling for, for new orders. So, this is, of course, an economic challenge. It, does that negatively impact the willingness of the sector to move forward on, on the Green Deal? Uh, that's certainly not. And in, in that sense, we were very much uh, pleased. Uh, we spent a lot of time on it, but we were very much pleased that um, in the end, we succeeded to have this co-program partnership on zero emission waterborne transport, to which uh, reference has already been made which is a clear uh, indication of the determination of our sector and also of the public side to uh, spend money in, into innovation. Um, and that innovation should help the sector in speeding up its efforts uh, towards alternative fuels and um, zero emission technologies. But the fact is that at the moment, of course, the COVID um, impact is, is uh, let's say, putting us a bit in an, in an awkward situation. So. Economically, yes, there is a challenge. On the other hand, the determination to decarbonize is certainly there, and we still see it, as I mentioned earlier on, as an, as, as an opportunity provided that we have the uh, right framework conditions. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I want to now look at uh, fuel EU maritime. So, of course, this legislation aims to shift European shipping towards lower carbon fuels, which are cleaner, but at present they're more costly and available in lower quantities. Um, what are your reactions to this legislation as proposed? Did the Commission get the balance right between environmental protection and feasibility? Uh, Michele, uh, we'll start with you, please. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. Uh, well, I uh, really welcome the approach that the Commission has taken when it comes down to the fuel EU maritime. I think this has been uh, uh, really also one of the, of the requirements to address a combination of measures, this sort of basket of measures that is very often indicated, and I think that uh, that is a necessity. Uh, is it enough? I don't think that is yet enough. In particular, there is a lot of uh, open questions related to the availability of the fuels and uh, also in some cases related to their, uh, to their technological uh, uh, maturity. Uh, so that is certainly something that will still need to be, to be addressed, but I think this is something that is, is a, definitely represents a very good step. And uh, um, so I would say that uh, while there are uh, rooms for improvement, I think there is a good balance. What for me is, is critical at this point when we're talking about the EU maritime is that, um, my, or at least my concern, is that some of the, of the good policies that are being presented now in the, uh, in the FIT 455 and in the EU maritime, um, they might be uh, manipulated or watered down in the end. And uh, uh, we have seen that, for example, also with LNG, with a very ambitious plan. Uh, and, and then in the end, the, the impact, it's something that probably we're starting to feel maybe 15 years later, when it is a bit too late actually to, to, to jump on, the, on LNG as a solution for the problems that we have. And that is a little bit my concern. So is how can we really ensure that uh, there is a very clear um, 
statement, policy statements from the side of Europe, uh, and that this policy statement is also adopted very clearly by the member state, and that is also something that then is is, is translated into into an effective uh, uh, policy. That is where I, I would see I, I see the challenge at the moment, but I think the initiative. The way it has been set up is, is uh, very positive and it is the right signal that needs to be given. We, we have done various studies also looking, for example, at uh, the responsiveness of the sector to, um, to, uh, to regulation. And what it comes out is that what is the worst thing that a regulator can do is give a signal and then not following up on that signal. That is really creates a, a distrust of the reliability of the regulatory initiative, and it and it creates it stimulates that that idea of having a wait and see approach, which is exactly what we don't need to have in in shipping. We need, on the contrary, to give a strong push, providing the support also for this push to to uh, allow for the adequate investment in the business case that was mentioning before. But there has to be a very very clear. A statement, and I think he, I really welcome uh, what uh, Ms. Lezovici mentioned at the beginning, is that uh, we shouldn't fool ourselves. The policy is there to stay, and this is actually exactly uh, the type of, of attitude we need to have, and I hope that this is going to be accepted and, and received also by the European member states that will also uphold this ambitious uh, plan that the Commission has set for, forward with the Fit for 55 strategy and, of course, with the EU Fuel Maritime. Thank you, Michele. Um, Christoph, um, I'd also like to get your reaction to whether uh, the balance was struck correctly. Um, particularly, um, you mentioned in your opening statements that uh, there's large competition from Asia um, for European maritime. In your opinion, does this uh, legislation, does it hinder or does it help uh, European maritime business? Well, <clears throat> first of all, um, let me start on, on a positive note. Um, as I said, we are still in the, in the full examination of, of all the proposals, but what we certainly um, welcomed in, um, in the Fit for 55 uh, package, and especially on, on the fuel EU Maritime, is the approach that has been adopted. Goal-based approach, fuel and technological neutrality, a well-to-wake approach, but also the necessity for legal certainty, for predictability, all these things are very important. And I hope that in the further discussion that will take place in the Parliament and in the European um, and in the Council, that these principles will still be um, supported and reflected. Uh, sorry, John, um, I was uh, under the impression that uh, speaking about China, then all of a sudden that was the reason why things went wrong, but I'd say that it was another reason. Um, Answering your question as to whether uh, the Fit for 55 will uh, help or hinder the European industry, um, I think in theory uh, this uh, package has a lot uh, of potential, has a lot of uh, has a lot to offer to our sector. We see it as a promising um, opportunity for our sector, but in the end we will see what comes out of the discussions in Parliament and, and in Council. What is very important is that, indeed, um, if we want to uh, set the scene and, and we want to be amongst the, uh, let's say, the, the, the world leaders in innovation, in the greening, there is certainly the potential for Europe, for the uh, maritime ecosystem in Europe, to lead by example. But we also know that many of the ships trading into EU waters and into EU ports are built um, and is looking at into steel, uh, iron uh, and so on. We are just wondering how this uh, mechanism or whether this mechanism could also be helpful 
for uh, let's say European uh, the European maritime uh, technology sector, so for the European shipyards and the equipment manufacturers, which are at the moment still suffering tremendously from competitive distortions from Asia. So also there, I think there is a, an important uh, question to be answered. We don't have the uh, answer to, but happy to hear from um, the policymakers how they uh, see this. At the same time, and then I close, um, proposals like the carbon border tax um, could be beneficial, but at the same time could also not be beneficial. One of the fears that we already have is that since it will apply to uh, steel, this will most likely make the steel prices even more expensive than they are today. And that may then have, again, a negative impact on our competitiveness, knowing that, for instance, in Asia, and especially in China, the steel is very often uh, subsidized. So I think there is, in theory, a potential. Uh, but if we don't uh, get the, and that's why I'm saying the right framework conditions, if we don't get the framework conditions right, the legislation may be a hamper um, or an obstacle rather than a facilitator. So we hope we can set the boundaries and we uh, hope we can set the framework conditions right. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I'd like to get the reaction from our Commission colleagues, uh, but before that I will go to uh, Uko for his reaction to Fuel EU Maritime. Okay, very briefly, I, I think that our keynote speaker, Rosanna Lesovici, already made it quite clear that the main onus in that proposal is on the ship operators. So, of course, from our perspective, it is not perfectly balanced because <laughs> all the burden and pressure is on us, whereas we would very much like to also encourage active steps uh, to boost the supply of those alternative marine fuels. Because currently our ships, you know, as the proposal stands, will not be allowed to come alongside in any EU port if we are causing any emissions. And the term zero emissions may be politically catchy, but we would prefer to talk about net carbon neutral or dramatic reductions. But actually to get into zero is difficult when our ships operate, for instance, boilers that cannot be connected to shore power and so on. But these are technical details that I think we can have a constructive discussion with the Commission and the co-legislators. But our holy grail is the supply of clean fuels for bunkering in European ports. And unfortunately, while the shore power is a great way forward, it's an important step in this transition, I think there are a lot of remote coastal European regions and islands that simply do not have sufficient and certainly not clean electricity production capacity that our ships could just go in and plug in and then use shore power and therefore emit nothing. And this may have pretty dramatic impact in the deployment of cruise ships going forward. And of course, for other players to invest into those clean fuels, they need to see that there's a vibrant and growing cruise industry in these regions for the investments to become available. So there's a slight risk of a sort of a negative spiral. At the same time, I don't want to look at this too negatively. Um, there, are, there are a lot of good elements as well. And we are also in the process of analyzing the impact. But certainly there is a possible future when uh, this proposal could have fairly dramatic impact on the reduction of available cruise ports um, around Europe. But to be continued. Thank you very much, Uko. Um, 
So uh, our former panellist, uh, Joaquim Nunes de Almeida, had to leave, but I'm very happy to say that we are now uh, joined by his uh, DG Grow colleague, um, Antoine Kaczerski. Um, Antoine, um, I'd like to get your reaction, please, to, to what you've heard from our other panellists on Fuel EU Maritime. Thank you, Sean, and uh, hello, everybody. Uh, no, I think I think it is uh, it is very useful to have uh, this exchange of view. Indeed, um, maybe a, a number of elements that are also important in the in the perspective also of the uh, of the industrial uh, uh, or from the industrial perspective is the fact that uh, we are having a goal based approach uh, that the approach is gradual and predictable, and I think all those elements are making sure that we are setting. A framework which is there to encourage innovation, uh, a framework which is there to uh, provide the right uh, framework conditions. I think uh, this has uh, this the term has already been used uh, by uh, by several panelists uh, before. Um, and while while we do that uh, through the goal-based approach, that we have also enough margins uh, for the ecosystem to find uh, flexibility. Uh, when it comes to availability of certain fuel, uh, when it comes of certain productions, but also, uh, um, let's uh, I mean, let's be honest, uh, there, there may not be a one-size-fits-all solution. So, uh, the, the framework conditions and the and the business needs of uh, of a market segment may be very different from another market segment. And so, I think it is it is very useful to uh, to hear the uh, the comments that we've received today, and to see. Also, how those uh, those elements of goal base, uh, the, the gradual approach, and the predictability can sort of help. And I think uh, these, these are important feature of the proposals. And uh, and I think uh, we, or I hope at least uh, that they can uh, that they can be used fully uh, to make sure that they are effectively uh, put in place. Thank you very much indeed, Antoine. Um, Roxana, I'd like to turn to you now. Um, Keeping on the topic of fuel EU maritime, um, so the Commission went for a maximum limit on greenhouse gas content for fuels, um, but stopped short of a sustainable fuel uh, mandate. In aviation, of course, uh, the Commission has proposed a sustainable aviation fuel mandate. Um, can you tell us why a different approach was taken for maritime? Yeah, sure. Well, I said it already in my intervention. Um, we know that ships bunker anywhere in the world. So if we would have just put a request on that, uh, you know, fuel sold in Europe or ships bunkering uh, coming into Europe and bunkering here will need to use a certain type of fuel. Um, we very well know nobody would have bunkered in Europe. Everyone would have bunkered outside and we'd continue the, with business as usual. Uh, because in that regard, uh, um, a container ship or any other ship for that matter, you know, can bunker once and then go back and forth to Shanghai potentially, while a plane still needs to land in, an, in another country and then possibly uh, still refuel a little bit. So that was the main uh, main concern we had, is that we wanted to avoid carbon leakage from that perspective in the sense that people will just go and bunker somewhere else. And, this, uh, and a side effect of that would have been, of course, that those operating only in Europe, so the ferries between European states or even within the same member states, would still have to, to buy uh, the alternative fuel in Europe, so there would have been a competitive disadvantage. But I also want to dare say that we do, we feel that we are, set, we are setting a, a, actually a fuel requirement. 
but we put it on the ship side, so on the use side. So in a way, if you want, we are mandating the demand. Uh, we're not mandating the supply, we're mandating the demand. And if you allow me just to pick up on what, uh, uh, what the colleagues from industry have referred to and the fact that, of course, in the fuel EU maritime, we put the burden on the, on the ship owners. Of course, we cannot forget that there is also a burden on, on the suppliers through the Renewable Energy uh, Directive, that there will need to be more and more renewable fuels into the EU energy mix. Um, and also, of course, from our side, which is also on, under the control of our own commissioner, um, the alternative fuels infrastructure, we are very much aware, and we've been through this experience with LNG before, we need to provide the necessary support to ensure that the ports will have the bunkering facilities for the alternative fuels, the OPS. Um, so that proposal also looks at this aspect. And of course, associated to that, we will have the 10T regulations coming, a revision coming at the end of this year. Um, we have the CEF funding, the Connecting Europe facility, where we will be looking at supporting this massive investments that we will need to do across Europe. Um, of, and of course, it's not something that we, we will do tomorrow. Uh, and, but again, it's not something we ask of ship owners to do tomorrow. Uh, if I go back to the colleagues from CLIA, yes, of course, um, it's not easy, not always easy to connect to, to onshore power supply. Not every port has 10, I mean, we never have maybe 10 ship, cruise ships in port at the same time, but um, that's why we have actually thought about it and put the requirements only in 2030. Uh, we've given a further grace period of five years to make sure that this developments happen. But at the same time, by putting in stone these deadlines, we are giving the predictability also to the suppliers that they can make these investments. Because we also have talked to the fuel suppliers who need to know that there will be a market for these massive investments they need to make on their end. So I hope I answered your question. A ship, yes. a ship is not the same as a as an airplane. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Roxana. Um, I'd actually would like to uh, stay with you just for a moment. Um, there's a question coming through on the chat. Um, so basically, th there's perhaps some fear that as Europe shifts to low carbon fuels, um, which is going to be the case, maritime aviation, perhaps the road sector, um, that there'll be greater competition uh, between these sectors for these fuels, um, for example, waste-based biofuels, they aren't currently available in huge quantities. So perhaps decisions of where to deploy it will need to be made. Um, is this a concern of yours and do you see clean fuel scarcity affecting maritime decarbonization? Uh, we have, this is something that we have been, or the colleagues also who have done the impact assessment and have worked heavily on it, um, have looked very carefully because it is a true concern and, and we need to make sure that the policies, because we've come with so many proposals for different sectors at the same time, we need to make sure that the market will follow. And this is precisely why we have, uh, first of all, remained technology neutral on maritime because there is not one solution that fits all. But at the same time, we have a very phased approach. I know a lot of people have complained that we are not ambitious enough, but we have made a conscious choice to start with maybe a lower ambition level um, to give time to the market to develop and to ensure that in time, these necessary quantities will be available to everyone who needs them. Of course, we know very well that shipping companies are in the middle um, are in the middle of the of trials of different alternatives, and as we, as they themselves progress, of course the market will 
um, will will firm up more in where, in which directions, and which types of fuels we will need on um, we will need in the future. But our primary concern was exactly this: to give enough time to the market to develop, while setting this big milestone, so that both on the side of the demand and on the side of the supply, there is predictability and so the investments can be made. But of course, this market needs to grow because otherwise decarbonization of shipping will not happen. Um, and uh, that's why we have also been a bit encouraged uh, by the reactions from fuel suppliers who actually see the proposal like this, like we see it. It's a long-term predictable framework in which they can then make the necessary investments. So uh, I think, yes, there is this fear that there is going to be competition for the fuels, but I think at least from the maritime side, let's not forget for 2025, we want to reduce the CO2 carbon content, the carbon content uh, in, in fuels by 2% from the current levels. So, and then by 6% in 2030. So I think this gives us enough time to the market to, to, to prepare the necessary investment. Thank you very much. Well, just sticking with the topic of fuel types. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about what the optimal fuel types are, hydrogen, biofuels, ammonia. Um, I'd like to get your opinion on where we should be focusing our efforts and what you see as the most commercially and practically viable solutions. Um, Christoph, perhaps we can start with you. Um, thank you for the question. <laughs> um, I think from from my perspective as i said earlier on we look into fuel and technology neutrality and and, and that means uh, that's an, a handy way uh, uh, to respond to your question in the sense that from our perspective we are not opting for one another we clearly have members who uh, are testing uh, a certain uh, fuel solution and we have members who are looking into other fuel solutions what is important, and it has already been said, there will not be a one-size-fits-all solution simply because you have different ship types operating in different uh, trades uh, or types of trade. And so all that um, makes the, um, the, the, the development um, of or the adaptability of uh, shipping to the new reality of, of, of green and, and zero emission uh, uh, rather complex and and for us it's really it's really important that all the um, options are on the table that in the end the market can develop all these options that there will be enough availability um, at a reasonable cost and then it's in the end up to the ship owner to decide uh, which uh, let's say option he or she prefers to take on the on the basis of different parameters which can include uh, the commercial aspects but from our side, clearly, there is no um, uh, no preferred uh, fuel type. Thank you. I'd also like to put the same question to Uko. Um, where do you think we should be focusing our efforts in terms of fuel? Well, it is very clear that the current focus in Europe is on hydrogen. Um, the challenge for the cruise industry is that hydrogen it's not dense enough fuel. So basically we wouldn't have much space for cabins on our ships if we were to be powered by hydrogen as such. However, clean hydrogen could be used as a building block to create other alternative marine fuels, for example, synthetic LNG. And this goes back to your earlier question about LNG. I think it needs to be understood as an important transitional fuel. And the ships that are currently being built for LNG and the shoreside infrastructure for bunkering LNG 
could be used if over time uh, there were companies that invested into um, creation of uh, synthetic LNG. So that is one path. Um, I hear a lot of discussion about biomethane and other clean biofuels. There, I think you could help by clarifying uh, certain regulatory standards. Um, uh, it is, at least to me, clear as mud, but certainly biofuels will certainly play some sort of a role. But I totally agree with Christoph that it is too early to pick and choose or try to choose a sort of a winner in this very complicated field because different sized ships will need different solutions. I think batteries may well play a role as they already are playing in, let's say, small passenger uh, ferries operating in Norwegian fjords, but one cannot jump from short operations with 100 people to a ship that needs to sail across the Atlantic with thousands of people. So there will be different types of solution to different types and sizes of ships, and nobody has the precise exact answer that how this will unfold, but my gut feeling is that at the end of the day, we will see a combination of different technologies. So it's not going to be just one fuel. There could be two different fuels, combination with battery uh, technologies and new propulsion technologies, all coming together in a way that can then meet the regulatory requirements and ultimately reach that net carbon neutral cruising, which is our vision. Thank you. Thank you, Uko. Uh, Roxana, I'd like to give you the opportunity to respond uh, to these points. Well, I couldn't agree more <laughs> with both Christoph and, and Uko. I mean, that's exactly the, the, um, the philosophy behind our goal-based approach. Uh, we could, we did not feel in a position that we can pick and choose a fuel or two or three types of fuel now. And it's not really our role as regulators and, and legislators and the parliament and the council role to choose a, a certain technology. As Ugo has said, of course, hydrogen is and uh, gets a lot of attention in Europe, not because it's only viable in, in maritime, but because it can help, you know, trucks or other, other um uh, applications uh, on land. Of course, it can be useful, like he said, on on uh, on ferries, on short distance ships. Uh, while, of course, the ocean going ships and the ones that are at sea for long periods of time will need to find different alternatives. Uh, but again, I wouldn't, I I would not deviate from the technology neutral approach and the goal based approach. And I think for us that will be critical to keep in the months ahead when we start discussion, where actually the co-legislator starts discussions and, and as we approach finalizing the, the, the legislative discussions, because if we lose that, I think we, you know, we want to avoid that we pick the wrong technology, if I can say, and I don't think any of us has a crystal ball today and, and can say what will be the technology for the future. And as I said, the trade is so different that there is no one solution for all. So, um, we will need the market to come up with, with the best solution for the specific trade they are serving, and only the actors in the market know this. Thank you very much, Roxana. Um, I believe that Michele, you would also like to comment on this topic. Uh, yes, um, thank you very much, Sean. And I think, of course, the, the comments I've made are, are very, very relevant. There is, a, though, a, a problem, unfortunately, with this approach. And the problem is that if we want to go to, to uh, zero emission ships or uh, the amount of money that we will be needing is quite substantial. And a large portion of this amount of money is actually needed on infrastructure. 
And so I think we have to be careful that we select a type of solutions that are, yes, technology neutral, but are also allow us to have uh, a certain flexibility on the infrastructure. I remember the Getting to Zero Coalition had estimated that to, to completely decarbonize shipping, we will need between 1 trillion and 1.5 trillion dollars, if I remember correctly. And, and, that, and a large portion of that, uh, about 87%, is actually uh, on the land infrastructure. And of course, we have to be careful that we do not uh, duplicate infrastructure. So in, th in that sense, maybe the investment in LNG, if we could uh, try to use that investment and not have stranded assets and consider that also in the choice of the fuel is, is very relevant. But of course, I fully agree with the previous speakers that it's difficult to select one technology. But we do have the problem that a large amount of money will be needed and unfortunately, a large portion of this money is also public money because a lot of the investment in ports uh, and the, in the infrastructure might actually be generated by the public sector. So that is even a more uh, urgent question, especially in times of tight budgets and this money can be used for other things as well. Thank you very much indeed, Michele. Um, I'd also like to take some questions from our chat. Um, there's a question for Antoine from Carolina Boholm. Um, I'm curious how DG Grow looks at the issue of carbon leakage for energy-intensive industry uh, industries. These industries will now, when maritime is included in the EU uh, ETS, be affected for a third time. Um, do you have any responses to that, Antoine? Well, maybe on the on the energy-intensive uh, industry, uh, not so much. I'm afraid uh, because I'm, I'm more looking at the at the mobility uh, angle and within the mobility angle, the uh, the, the maritime and the rail. Uh, sectors, but I think uh, a number of, of elements have already been mentioned uh, already in the discussion, uh, notably with the, the carbon adjustment uh, mechanism, uh, which is which is also there to uh, uh, to help alleviating the, uh, the the potential issues and and, uh, and potential distortion of the level playing field, um, and and I think also what uh, Joachim mentioned earlier uh, in the uh, in the opening uh, statement. On the current work which is done uh, by DigiGrow uh, on the, the transition pathway for the different mobility ecosystem, we are precisely trying to identify what are the uh, the, the key issues to uh, to address to make sure that uh, we can uh, have accelerate and facilitate the, the train transition, so a sustainable and digital transition, while uh, having a resilient uh, uh, industry and industrial ecosystem in Europe. So I think these are these are precisely the type of issues that we actually want to uh, to discuss uh, in the the different processes of the uh, of the transition pathway for the different ecosystems. And and here the the energy intensive industries are one of the ecosystems. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for Roxana just on the emission trading system. Um, so this is going to be, uh, it's proposed that this is uh, going to be expanded to maritime and that this will include non-EU flagged um, vessels. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of this from um, certain bodies. Um, is, what's your reaction to this criticism? Is the EU overreaching here by potentially asking for carbon permits from uh, foreign vessels? Well, I've heard this before, and I'm sure I will hear it again. Um, 
let me start with one thing that everyone is fully aware. Maritime transport operates in an environment that is open and open markets and has intense international competition. And we all know that flag neutrality has been and will always be paramount in maritime regulation, be it safety, be it environment, be it whatever you want. So, and because this is the best way to ensure level playing field across market actors, no matter where they are. Second, let us not forget that non-EU vessels already report uh, emissions under the EU maritime uh, monitoring and reporting verification system. There are also other regional requirements that apply to all vessels, regardless of flag in like OPS in California. And of course, the other important thing that we cannot forget when we set up environmental regulation is that emissions reported under MRV show that up to 60% of total emissions come from voyages with an external leg, while only 40% come from voyages that happen between two EU ports. So of course, it's important to, to cover uh, also non-EU flags that operate in Europe and that come to Europe or leave Europe. Um, however, again, nothing would please us more than to see that we do have a global market-based me uh, measure adopted and implemented at IMO level that covers all emissions. But of course, we're not there yet. And in Europe, we have decided to take up our responsibilities. And actually, that gives me the opportunity to react to something that I think both Michele and I'm not sure now, I'm just looking through my notes, uh, another speaker has uh, has made um, that, of course, Europe, because we are such a big market and, and a big player, has leverage on the global scheme. Uh, I would like to say with one caveat that we do speak with one voice, and that is fundamental when we, when we go to the IMO and that we all pull in the same direction. So, not, again, as I said, nothing would please us more than to have very ambitious level uh, measures at the level of the IMO uh, as soon as possible. And uh, but in in getting there, we will also need that our own member states and the Commission we all push in the same direction, and we fight for this um, for this uh, for these new measures. Also, because and this brings me back to something Christoph has been saying. Of course, Europe setting certain ambitions uh, covers only. A, that much of the market of ships if you want but if uh, across the globe we will set ambitious measures for reducing greenhouse gas emissions of course all ships that will fundamentally sail uh, on on the seas and oceans of this world will need to have new equipments will need to be much more efficient and that will create an even bigger market for our producers so um it's not it's a not a new question it has always been there it will always be there but I do not see any measure in Europe being for safety or for environment that is not flag neutral. That's just not that's just not something we are entertaining. Well, thank you, Roxana. Um, I'm sure we could continue to have this conversation for another hour, but looking at the time, we are uh, moving towards the end of our virtual conference. Um, before we go, I'd like to ask each of our panelists to give some closing remarks. Um, I'd ask each of you to summarize the main message that you would like our audience to take home with them um, as briefly as possible. Um, so let me start with Uko Matsala of CLIA Europe. Uh, Uko, the floor is yours. Your closing remarks, please. Thank you, Sean. Going back to my opening remarks, I just firmly believe as a pro-European European citizen with pretty long historical roots in the European maritime industry that we can lead in green maritime innovation in Europe. And indeed, we should 
just like was said by our keynote speaker, Rosana Lesovici, I think that there is a huge opportunity for win-win. We look at this all very calmly, very analytically and constructively. There are technical concerns in certain aspects of the Fit for 55 proposal, and we are trying to start understanding the financial implications. Um, all of this is going to be an interesting challenge for the entire cruise sector and therefore for the wider industrial European maritime cluster for the next couple of years and for the time thereafter. But I believe that you know the intentions of the European Union and of the Green Deal um, are actually very well aligned with our thinking. So we need to keep these communications channels open so that when we have legitimate points, be it technical or something else, uh, we appreciate the sort of access and ability to have these sort of discussions with the Commission and, of course, with the European Parliament and the member states who will now have to look at the impact of this proposal um, as it relates to cruise industry and passenger shipping um, in particular. So um, I just want to focus on the positive. Um, we can make the best out of this and Europe can lead on the green maritime innovation but I don't see how that would be happening if cruise industry wasn't at the heart of that uh, important transition. Thank you. Thank you very much, Uko. Um, Christoph, I'd ask for your brief uh, closing remarks now, please. Uh, thank you. Um, first of all, I couldn't agree more with Uko. Uh, the cruise industry is vital um, for the European maritime economy, especially for the shipyards and equipment manufacturers, and they should not be um, neglected. Uh, secondly, um, speaking about uh, resilience, uh, and then I come back to my point about economic growth, the European Green Deal has a lot of potential. It looks promising, but we need to make sure in Europe that we get everything, all the framework conditions right, that we really make this into not just a strategy for climate change, but also a strategy for economic growth, and that invites both the shipyards and the equipment manufacturers. And third point, um, Maritime ecosystem has already been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, a couple of times, I think we should, uh, and that's a plea to the European Commission. I think we should have much more a maritime ecosystem approach than uh, by bringing all the actors around the table for the policy development or for the further, let's say, implementation of policies. And I think the Fit for 55 may be a perfect uh, example or perfect case where. I think a maritime ecosystem approach um, would be at its place. And that also includes the taxonomy discussions. And I will leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Christoph. Uh, Michele, I'd now invite you to give your closing remarks. Thank you very much, uh, Sean. It has been a very interesting debate. I have two points that I would like to, to stress. So the first one is uh, uh, the importance of a clear, firm and coordinated policy approach that also encompasses the sort of ecosystems or the uh, framework conditions for the development of, uh, of this transition. I think that's very critical and very important. And I think with the Fit for 55, we are on a, on a good step in that direction. The other thing is that I would like maybe to challenge also part of the discussions that we are today. I, I hear a lot the word growth, development, always with this idea of expansion. I think also for shipping, we have to consider that uh, uh, the way of handling economic development that we have used until now uh, is probably not compatible with a climate-aware uh, world. So we also need to start thinking of different business models where 
we are not building these models on growth, but maybe on the quality of what we are offering. And I think this is very challenging uh, because building new infrastructure, building uh, new technologies and, and inventing new things is not always the solution. At some point, we might also have to reduce um, our, our consumption patterns. And I think this is where a, an enormous challenge lies ahead also for, for Europe and for shipping. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I now move to our Commission colleagues. Uh, Antoine, first, I'll, I'll give you the floor for your closing remarks, please. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Well, you know, I think I think there is agreement on the question whether the EU can still lead the innovation. And I think we've heard from, I think, all the speakers that the answer is yes. Uh, and uh, and I think we, for, on my side, uh, this is also the case. Uh, they, there are a lot of elements that have already been mentioned in terms of green growth, uh, in terms of uh, of enabling a transition that are that are that have been said already that I will not repeat. Uh, the, we, we've discussed a lot about the regulatory approach today, and it, this is very important. Uh, this is an important framework condition, as we mentioned, but the transition doesn't stop with regulation. And I think now what we also need to do is to engage with all economic actors to see how we actually uh, uh, make sure that the transition really happens on the ground. And uh, this is uh, what we will do with, uh, with the, uh, um, the partnership uh, within Horizon Europe. Uh, this is, you know, the partnership as within its, uh, in essence, is also about the, the, the cooperation. And this is very important to have there the, uh, the technology providers, the shipbuilders, and, and also the operators, because uh, uh, cooperation will be key to ensure that we close the valley of death. And, and well, innovation is only useful when it is deployed. And, and I think this is what we need to do. And maybe just a last point to finish on this, uh, on this engagement with uh, with uh, stakeholders and, and cooperation just to uh, to recall again the uh, the exercise that we're launching now with the transition pathway it's also precisely to engage with the uh, with the stakeholder community at large and the member states on how to best make sure that we have uh, an industrial ecosystem for maritime mobility which is uh, becoming greener smarter and more resilient Thank you, Antoine. We had uh, some technical issues at the very end there, but I believe we heard your point. So now I would uh, invite uh, Roxana to give uh, her closing remarks. Um, thank you. I Basically, I just want to say that I'm very encouraged to see that we are all looking in the same direction and we share the same goals. Of course, as Uko has said, um, the devil is always in the detail. He knows very well and... and the whole maritime community knows very well that we, we are open to discuss those. Of course, the proposals that we've made are now in the hands of the Parliament and Council. We will be consulted. Um, so our door is always open to, to, to solve because we actually want a system that will work for everyone. Um, I also want to echo a bit what was said a bit earlier. Um, we are very much aware that um, massive investments in infrastructure, not just in fuels, uh, and on the side of the ships will be required, and um, and we are very much aware of that. We will walk the talk. Uh, we will put money into that. Of course, member states also can do that. Um, the funds that we collect through the ETS or the penalties that we will collect through fuel and marine time will be dedicated to to innovation and new technologies and and uh, and bringing ships up to to date. Um, I think also echoing a bit what Antoine just said. Um, the regulatory framework has a key role to play, but of course, um, 
you know, the proof is in the pudding. So now we need to see that uh, that developments happen in the market. So we will be very closely following up that, and uh, and we will engage with stakeholders at uh, at all levels and and in all uh, sectors of the of the trans of the maritime cluster to to make that happen and to help that happen to as much as we can from our side. Thank you very much indeed, Roxana. Well, that sadly brings us to the close of today's conference, uh, but I would like to thank all of our panelists for their contributions today. Uh, I, I thank you to CLIA Europe for supporting today's debate. And of course, thank you to you, the viewers, for joining us. Uh, if you want to watch this virtual conference back, you can find it online at your Active's YouTube channel. Well, that's all. For now, from the Reactive Studio, in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.